Alright, turn back again to Jude. Brian read the whole chapter of Jude. And we're going to be looking at the last two verses. Uh, we're going to go back and look at some of the other verses after this short reading to get some of the context. But the title of the message is The Gospel of Preservation. The Gospel of Preservation. When I'm talking about preservation, you know, I could use several different things. Some people talk about eternal security, once saved, always saved, different phrases like that just meaning the same thing, that once a person is saved, they stay saved if they're saved by Christ. Verse 24, the last two verses of that chapter is uh, what we're looking at here. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. So I told you the title of the message and what it concerns and we're going to be looking at uh, some to prove that if a person is saved by Christ that he stays saved. And in the end, we're going to conclude, and I think uh, I'm going to get to it, that uh, anything that says anything different is, a, is another gospel. And really, to me, in my opinion, you can maybe bump some ideas off of me or respond to this a little later. Don't you guys see this type of a message of where one loses their salvation as being the clearest and most simple of false gospels because of the just got conditionalism and law written all over it? It's, it's not very subtle, but it's very, very famous. The vast majority of people who claim to be Christian, their churches teach this doctrine of losing salvation. The vast majority. You could just as easy uh, name those that don't before you name those that do. We can get into some specifics later on that. But what I want to do is, is show that the question of security has to do with the one securing. So we're going to focus on Christ. We're not going to talk about, well, if you do this, if you don't do that, we're not talking, we're talking about the one securing. And that's the last two verses that we looked at it explained. This is, the, we're talking about a person here, the one who is the savior. And that idea will lead us to conclude who gets the honor, the credit, the glory, and actually who should be worshiped. In other words, the spotlight is on who is the Savior. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Man is always too busy talking about what he can do. We know this. We know this from experience. We know this from the scripture. Psalm 39.5 says, Man at his best is altogether vanity. Isaiah 40.17 says, All the nations before him are as nothing, and to him they are thought to be less than nothing and vanity. <laughs> Did you hear that? All the nations before him, they are as nothing. And to him, they are thought to be less than nothing and vanity. So he says what they are, and then he says what Christ thinks about them. Less than nothing. Is that possible? Less than nothing? The scripture says it. That's what Christ thinks about it. <laughs> so anytime man rears his self-righteous, ugly head to do something or be recognized for something, less than nothing. So the focus in this quickly gravitates toward how can one be accepted to the only true God such as this, this God that we're talking about, who thinks in his mind, his eternal, wise, perfect mind, that the nation's are less than nothing in vanity. How can we be accepted by such a God as that? The only true God. The one who is of too pure eyes to even behold evil. The one who has said, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, even both are an abomination to the Lord. And this is the testimony of the natural man that always says the same thing all the time. It doesn't change. And Christ 
testifies concerning them, says, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. And we know what is highly esteemed among men, their own righteousness. So we know that that is, as we studied recently, that is the part of what's called the deceivableness of unrighteousness, or in other words, self-righteousness. And that is held in a, in a double mind of those who do not know God and do not obey his gospel, as it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And it says that Christ, of course, is coming in flaming fire with his mighty angels to destroy these people. In our text in Jude, it goes on to say more about that. In verse 15, it says that he's coming to do judgment against all. I thought this was... Uh, I couldn't get past this verse in the thinking, and Brian just read it again, of overall view of man being less than nothing. Here it is. And this is who Christ is coming to do judgment against. Against all to who? To rebuke all the ungodly of them concerning all their ungodly works, which they ungodly did, and concerning all the hard things ungodly sinners spoke against him, spoke against Christ. There's a lot of ungodliness there. And all that is, when I say all that is, I don't want to shrink it down because it's a big deal. It's, it's, it's a bunch of ungodly pile of stuff. It's a man or woman lowering the standard of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the root of it. God's message is it's always been the same from the beginning. And the promise that the world is going to hate it is still in place and the world is going to hate those who believe it that promise is still in place and it's still true so the world stands against us and mocks our God and his gospel to redundantly scream that salvation that's outside of ourselves that we hold to that's in Christ alone is utter foolishness. That's what they're screaming toward us all the time. Because they crave a salvation. And the consensus and the trend of the world is that the world will always be targeting a salvation which concerns our own righteousness. It's the only trustworthy Salvation, because we're in it, we experience it, we're doing it, we're seeing it with, with, the, with our own eyeballs. So we're immersed in our own doing. That's the way of the world. That's the, that's the double-mindedness. That's the way that seems right. That's, as one rock and roll group says, that's the path that's clear. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I will choose the path that's clear. I will choose free will. It was my favorite group growing up. Rush, they wrote that. But that, that sums it up in reference to religion. That's the path that's clear. Our own way. The way that seems right. Us laying our hands on it and being part of the solution. Where when God teaches his people right away, we're taught... We're the problem. We're not the solution. The solution is outside of ourselves. So it goes back to who is the Savior? Where does our faith look to? What is our assurance in? It's just like the discussion right before the message concerning uh, justification. What, what is it that justifies us? Or who is it that justifies us? That's where our faith is. So these questions should pop up in our mind. Is grace sufficient when we're looking at this overall topic in um, the gospel of preservation? Is grace sufficient to preserve? Is it grace alone? Is grace really alone? Is faith really alone? I, I, you see these arguments all the time on social media. It's faith alone, but it's never alone. <laughs> it better be alone. If we're talking about justification, it better be alone. 
Is it sovereign grace? It's the only kind there is. It's the only kind there is. So in the context here, let's see uh, who's, who's talking and who are they talking to. Jude 1, 1. Jude is talking. He says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. Who's he talking to? To them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. So right off the bat, as we've been talking about sanctification a lot this past year, we always talk about a Trinitarian sanctification, how that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is involved in sanctification of God's people. And it's in order here. Notice, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. We know this is God the Father setting his love upon his people and choosing them in Christ. They're set apart by that act in God's mind forever. The eternal act of God that was purposed in his decree. So God is the first phase in sanctification. The second one says, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now that's the title of our message, the gospel of preservation. I'm not necessarily leaning on this verse as the main thrust of the whole message, even though it is the centerpiece here. We know this is talking about by the merit of his blood. We're preserved by the merit of his blood. He is the Lord our righteousness by his cross work. He is the righteous one on the throne, sitting on the throne of righteousness, holding the scepter of righteousness, reigning in righteousness, and he declared, we're declared righteous because of his person and his work. His merit, totally, all of his merit. That happened before we were born. And then thirdly, and called. This is a this is the work of the Holy Spirit, the effectual call. God imparting life, defeating us by giving us life. And after that point in time, you can't look back. It's irresistible grace. He's taken us where he's going to take us, where he planned on taking us, and why Christ died for us. And we can now see, except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And now we see it. So there's the threefold um, aspect of sanctification, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sanctified by the Father, preserved in Christ, and called by the Spirit. Those people, in verse 2, Jude can say mercy to. He says, mercy unto you, and peace and love. And then he throws some multiplication in it. A lot of it, right? It's going to be a lot of the hyperabounding of all these things that were given in Christ. All the spiritual blessings, more than conquerors, bulletproof. No nobody can lay any charge of God's elect. All these things. Mercy, sovereign mercy, sovereign love, and as a result, we will have peace. We do have peace. We will have peace. And it's all because of Christ. Verse 3 starts out more ammo for our point of who we're talking to. Who is Jude writing to? Beloved, those that are loved by God in Christ. Part of that sanctification that was mentioned in the verse before, that we're set apart in the love of God in Christ. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you, and these are the recipients of the love of God in Christ, not conditioned on them, but in, by, and through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Speaks of this, uh, notice here, common salvation. So he's talking to those that have the same gospel, that have the same salvation. It's not common in and of itself. It's special. But it's the same as other believers have. We all in this room that believe the same gospel have a common salvation. It's common in that way that we believe the same gospel. 
and we have the same salvation. And remember what we said, I think, a week or two ago about that is that there are no levels in salvation. I'm not any more saved than anybody else. I'm not any more righteous or any more holy or vice versa. Uh, we're there by virtue of one person, and it's because of him. He's perfect. Therefore, that's the standard. He meets the standard. He's the very glory of God, and we get in through him, and nobody has a vantage point. You know, and you get in quicker, no kind of, there's no bribing. You know, it's free grace, and that comes from God, not, we don't sneak in so we don't have a backstage pass. Um, you know, throughout uh, times in my life, um, I don't have a lot of big connections, but even like small connections in our life, maybe people we know, whether it be at work or somewhere else, where we get things, it's, it's kind of cool to have connections to get things, right? To get access to things. You can probably think in your mind of, of connections that you've had. Uh, I'd venture to say that everybody has had some kind of connection of getting something that you couldn't have got otherwise unless you had that connection. And, um, you know, some people have <laughs> jobs. Uh, they're called senators and representatives and stuff. Those people have all these little perks and stuff that um, through... Um, what are those um, through lobbyists and so on? Now, at, I remember back in the 80s and 90s, uh, even at a workplace, and this is starting to happen more often, workplaces would say concerning their maybe people in purchasing or whatever, or people that had power to buy things with the company's money, don't let the vendors like bribe you, give you tickets to things and perks so that you're not caring about the company and you're caring about getting these little trinkets to have access to plays and games and all this. There's none of that in salvation. One way. It's Christ alone. And it's, and it's nothing you do to get in. It's something he does to get you in. Of the common salvation that was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, that's the gospel, that body of doctrine that teaches the record of the truth concerning the accomplished redemption of Christ, that you contend for that gospel, the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So it's talking about believers, beloved. It's talking about those that hold to a common salvation. So it's talking about saved people, believers. Those that have been shown mercy, peace, and love. Those that are sanctified. These are the ones that are preserved. It already said it in the one verse, preserved in Christ. But I'm talking about overall, eternally, nonstop, forever, will be, are now, and will be preserved. Those that are his people that believe that gospel. Now, the bulk of the remaining of the content of this letter shows and warns of those that oppose God's sheep with their false doctrine and their actions that flow from that false doctrine. I'm not going to cover every verse. Uh, I probably could have, and probably in two parts, covered the whole chapter and may do that sometime soon, but um, since it's so short. But that's not my purpose today. We'll dabble in some of the verses. But uh, those last two is what we want to concentrate on. Look at verse 4. It shows a contrast. It talks about all God's people and what they have and what they possess in part. It says, for because there are certain men. Notice, notice the way that says that. Certain men. It's almost setting apart language in the other direction. Specific people he's talking about. Certain men crept in unawares. That kind of reminds you of Galatia. Remember how that they came in by stealth? Um, the people weren't expecting them, weren't ready for them, and they kind of like came in and they had some truth, but they blended it with their own self-righteous doctrine. But these certain men, they crept in, who were, notice this, before of old, 
ordained to this condemnation. Just as God's people were before of old ordained unto eternal life by Christ, and I just mentioned all these things in these first three verses that we are and we have because of Christ and the Trinity, just as we have all those things, here's the opposing crowd who was set apart before of old to be ordained to a specific condemnation. They're part of God's plan. Not on the good end of it. Not on the good end. Ungodly men. This is, we read that verse 15. It talked about the quadruple ungodly going on there in that verse. And this is them, ungodly men. Ungodly means uh, irreverent and wicked. And what are they doing? What's their job? What do they do? They turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's some other versions that use other words besides lasciviousness. I know that's not a word we use in everyday language. Language. The King James, American Standard Version, Revised Version, and Young's Literal Translation uses lasciviousness. The ESV, English Standard Version, use, uses sensuality. The modern King James, that's the one I use most of the time, used the phrase unbridled lust. And the older Bibles, the Geneva, this is of the 1590s, not the New Geneva, and the Bishop's Bible, which is of the 1500s, uses the word wantonness, wantonness. It meant, to me, wantonness makes more sense than anything. I mean, you, you can see how that the rest can play out if you understand the distinctions in lawlessness. How we talk about lawlessness, we talk about flesh, and we know those are used in different ways, but um, wantonness here makes me think of that these people in their mind are saying that grace is not sufficient. Grace is not sufficient. And what does that do? It denies the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's them saying, they're bringing a whole new agenda to the table. They're saying, no, whoa, whoa, stop. I got a whole new foundation I'm laying. What, what you've been saying is not sufficient. Let me tell you how it should be. And what they tell you is a little bit of that stuff with some of their other stuff added to it. And they say, this is the way that it is. And they say, doesn't that make sense? And those that aren't believers, yeah, that makes sense. Because that's the way you think by nature. You got to do it, right? What did that guy in Romans or in uh, Matthew 7, what did Christ say about that guy? that supposedly had these wonderful works, self-testimony. Haven't I done many wonderful works? What did Christ say about him? This guy with his best deeds, he was zealous. He was fervent. He was serious. He was sincere. And he was doing, he was doing his dead level best. A lot of energy was going out. And he was doing all these things in the very name of Christ. Probably had perfect church attendance. Probably whenever he would do something, everybody would look at him and say, man, I, I look up to that guy. I wish I, I wish I could do what he was doing. I, I wish that dude can perform. He's highly esteemed among the other people. But Christ said it was iniquity what that guy was doing. And iniquity is lawlessness. He's saying to that guy that's all doing all that flurry, said, you're an antinomian. That's what he was saying. You're an antinomian. You're against the law. 
And all the while, religious people look at those kind of people and say, look at how godly that man is. They would say, well, you know, he prays. I know, I know that at times he's prayed three and four hours a day. I wonder how you know that. Who told you that? He must have, right? <laughs> or he must have told somebody to tell you, <laughs> I got a leak. I need to have a leak. Can you tell them I've been praying three or four hours a day? <laughs> he might be like John Wesley who supposedly prayed three or four times, uh, three or four hours a day, and was in uh, what he started. It. it was called the Holy Club. All to be in the Holy Club. Don't you wish you were in it? Second mm -hmm. Timothy three five says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. Wickedness, lawlessness. The way this seems right. They've fallen short of it. As it says in it says in uh, Galatians 5 4, Christ has become no effect unto you, whosoever is justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. The word means you've fallen short of it. You're not even there. You're, you don't know what grace is. You haven't come up to grace yet. You've fallen short of it. It means to drop away, to be driven off one's course, to become inefficient, fall short, fail, take none effect. It just means you're, you're not there. It's not that you had it, lost it, you haven't even got it yet. If you think you're justified by what you do. The rest of, uh, in verse 4 in our text, uh, turning... The grace of God into turning means to transfer, transport, exchange, change sides, pervert, or remove the grace of God. Perverting the grace of our God. Removing the grace of our God. Exchanging the grace of our God into This is not good. This is an interruption of the way of God. And they're showing clearly an opposition to the way of God by their natural way that seems right. If to them grace is not sufficient, they have to have some sort of a, of a, of a, hybrid, a hybrid mix. But if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. Romans 11.6 If salvation is by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But man has to have, he's double-minded, he has to have a hybrid. And this is not like necessarily blatant or on purpose. It is the stealthy false prophets with the deceptive hearers in their own nature that haven't been taught of God, you put those two things together and it's recipe for disaster. We know that we don't know any better when we're in this shape. It's just something that automatically happens and it has to be stopped by God's grace. It's this idea that everybody thinks they're saved before they're saved until they're saved. And it's because they're just in a flurry. They're doing stuff. And everybody else around them is doing stuff to say, yeah, good stuff. Good job. Yeah. Amen. Pat you on the back. Way to go. Praise the Lord. It's a lot of religious flurry. And we don't know any better. So the idea is grace is not sufficient is what they're implying by what they hold to. With all their supposed solas only, faith alone, Christ alone, to God be the glory alone. All these alones, with all of their alones, they deceptively add a dash of originality, 
of something. It's alone, but it's not alone, but here it comes out of me. That's okay, isn't it? Does that make sense? You've defeated the word alone. It's like saying something's perfect and you add imperfection and you, then you say, is that okay? Is that all right? It's not okay. <laughs> You've destroyed it. You've destroyed it. So when we look at this, this issue of preservation, of security, as I said earlier, we have a tendency to look at, at people. And I've talked a lot about people in the introduction because that's what comes in and we have to talk about it. But we need to talk about why. What is the root? There's something lacking. People that believe this, it all boils down to is something that's lacking in their Savior. His peccable person and his failed work. That's the problem. And many problems, as we know, theologically, doctrinally, as we talk from week to week, the problem is they're not identified at their root. They're identified on down the line. The fruit, not the root. We talked about you know debates concerning, you know, people talk about free will. They talk about free will versus predestination. And they can talk about that all day philosophically and just miss the gospel altogether. Free will is the bad fruit of a failed person and work on the cross. That's what all free will is. That's the result of free will, a failed work. If you have a successful, accomplished, effectual, finished work, you don't care about free will. God, it shouldn't even pass through your mind. Who needs that? I need perfection. You look to the cross. Free will, that's... When you have a failed work, you have to start grasping. Free will is just one thing you'll grasp at. Just one. And it's all imaginary. Free will is a myth anyway, so... Just grab, grab at myths that turn from the truth, as it says in Titus. So it goes back to who is doing the securing. Is it this Christ of the scripture does the securing, or is, is there some imposter that has crept in that has said, well, let's make a deal. I'll do all that I can do, and now the rest is up to you. To hold your security, keep your security, maintain your security, that's an imposter because there's so many other things involved. You don't understand. Again, what's God's demands? Absolute perfection. What's the state of man? <laughs> Total depravity. Total depravity. They're as bad as they can be. You're as dead as you can be. You can't be more dead than dead. You can be dead longer, I guess. Which Would that make you stink more? Probably. Be dead longer, have a longer accountability, more accountability for what you know. Yeah, probably. But you're still dead. You're as dead as you can be. You can look and think, well, I see absolute perfection. If I start to do something to get toward absolute perfection, I'm at least that much closer. No. No. You don't understand the math there. Perfection is just that. Perfection. You can't start on perfection. You're either perfect or you're not. Perfection comes from without, and it comes to you. It's granted to you, and that's what grace is. The standard must be met outside of yourself. So here again, root. What is the root? What's the cause? What's the effect? And really, whenever you have additions, we just read the, we read the verse in Romans 11.6. And if by grace, it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. What that's saying is, if the person work of Christ is not enough, it's, if it's not sufficient, then there has to be additions and or condition. So that is what triggers when you have a failed person work, additions and conditions. But God's people, they hear the gospel in the, in the day of his power. God has purposed throughout all eternity. He has set his love and he has elected God's people in Christ. Christ has come. He's paid their debt, satisfied law and justice for them, established a righteousness for them. He has secured that. And in the day of his power, the gospel comes and Christ, his righteousness is imputed. We're regenerated. Our eyes are open. We are given faith toward Christ. We repent of our own additions and conditions. 
And we see that God's wrath is it's fully pacified against our guilt, our curse, our condemnation, all of our sins, every one of them, past, present, and future. And God's law and justice is perfectly satisfied in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Perfectly. It's an all-the-way gospel. We had a message called that last year. Then we see a fully sufficient work that needs no additions, no conditions added to establish righteous, to establish righteousness at all. There's, there's really no in-betweens. It's like it's, it's all the way or nothing. Is God powerful enough to reveal that? I don't think it's that tough for him to overpower our darkened mind with his light. So if that did not happen for you, you won't see it. But if it happened for you, God will show you. And guess what? You'll see it. You'll see it. And when you see it, again, there won't be any more additions or conditions. You'll see the love of God is sufficient. You'll see the cross of Christ is sufficient. You'll see that grace is sufficient as it's applied to the mind that God gives you and opens it to you. Look in verse 11 there. It talks about the way of Cain. Woe to them, for they went the way of Cain. I jumped a bunch of verses because we're going to run out of time. Think about the way of Cain. You know, Cain was not a drug dealer, a mobster, a bank robber. He wasn't up out picking up prostitutes. Cain, we'll go to Genesis chapter 4. Let's see what Cain was doing. The way of Cain. Not just Cain, but the way of Cain. This has to do with the way he thought, and the way he acted as a result of, of what was in his heart because of how he thought. He was in the, the broad way. You know, the two ways, the narrow and the broad. Well, the way of Cain's broad way. Genesis 4 and verse 1, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I'm thinking she was thinking it was the one that was promised at first, you know, the one that was going to crush the head of the serpent. She's like getting ahead of it, you know, impatient. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years, right? She's saying, next kid, that's the promise, right? And she bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now, not that I'm going to wear this out, I don't have the time, but there's a problem, first of all, with the ground. It's already been cursed already. God dealt out those curses in chapter 3, right after the fall. And uh, so Cain is dealing with that cursed ground. He's working in it with his hands. And, of course, Abel, uh, he's, he tends to sheep. And we know about this lamb that's to come eventually to take away the sin of the world. And we know already through some kind of animal that was killed, the skins covered Adam and Eve after the fall. There was a death there for a covering. This is what this is going towards. This sacrifice here that Abel was going to bring was a more excellent sacrifice, as it says in Hebrews concerning uh, Abel's sacrifice, than the tilling of the ground and the raising of the fruits of the labor of the hands of Cain, the way of Cain. I'm doing my thing with my hands. I have the mark of the beast on my right hand and on the forefront of my mind. And as he's digging, it's me, myself, and I. Pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and the flesh. It's all, it's all man. It's all springing up. Free will. Self-righteousness. Love of self. Substandard. Sacrifices that God says they're a stench. I don't want them. I don't want them. And here, Cain's going to offer one. And Abel, uh, he also, verse 4, brought of the firstlings of the flock and out of the fat thereof. We know that uh, 
what smelled so good a lot of times concerning these sacrifices was the fat that burnt on the altar. That's what smells good sometimes when you smell stuff cooking in the house is when that fat is cooking. And a um, few times in the Old Testament, God said it's a sweet-smelling savor. And that's kind of the idea here. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, this lamb. But unto Cain, his offering, he had no respect. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance, or in other words, the, the, his face, the look on his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. And until you shall be his desire and you shall rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field, Cain rose up against, his, against Abel his brother and killed him. Now, the intent of the heart in this murder of the brother came not because Cain was just, as I said, a rebel and a thug and a murderer to begin with. There was something that caused that to happen. And the root of it was that Cain was self-righteous and the Lord God would not accept his self-righteous works of his hands. Cain was offended by the gospel that Abel had concerning the sacrifice of the fatling of the lamb and the sweet-smelling savor of the acceptance of that sacrifice, which typified Christ. He didn't like it because he's offended by the gospel. And he hates not only the gospel, but the God of the gospel and those that preach the gospel. So what's he do? He kills them. As a result of that hatred in his heart coming from self-righteousness and then he became a murderer of course he was a murderer in his heart before he did it but before that before he even thought about anger or anything he was self-righteous why well, he was got in the ground to begin with to till it I'm doing it I'm gonna do it my own cursed way out of my own cursed ground Um, you don't have to turn there. I want you to turn to 1 John after I read this, but 1 John 3. But uh, I alluded to Hebrews 11 in verse 4. It says, by faith, Abel offered, notice that, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. It didn't say that the work was more excellent. It said that the sacrifice was more excellent. It's all about the Savior. By faith, Abel did this. In other words, by the object of his faith, which was the sacrifice. Let's keep it in its context here. More excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which the sacrifice, through faith, he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he, being dead, yet speaks. So, 1 John 3, let's look there. I'm going to see some other things about Cain and just some of this activity that's connected to, uh, I believe, in our Jude context. 1 John 3, 11 and 12. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Notice this, not as Cain who was of that wicked one, and killed his brother. For what did he kill him? Why? What was, what was the reason? Because his own works were evil. And, and that was his sacrifice. His religion was evil. His, his self-righteous religion, his activity, his works, were evil. And his brothers, the sacrifice, the lamb, was righteous. By faith. That's how he did that, remember? By faith. And Cain didn't like it. Cain hated it. Cain not only hated it, he hated him. Both hymns. Christ and Abel. Christ said that they hated me, they're going to hate you. 
A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Right? And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Go to go to verse 1 of John 3. I kind of didn't know if I had time to cover this, but it kind of doesn't matter. just want to look at it. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him, this is talking about believers, every man that has this hope in him, in Christ, modern King James capitalizes H, him, referring to the one that we have hope in outside of ourselves, Christ. Whoever has that hope purifies himself. That hope comes from the word of God, the gospel. Remember, the gospel is what purifies us. It, it sets us apart, right? It, it, the spirit takes the word of God and cleanses our minds, gives us a new mind. And our minds are renewed in this right here, in this idea. Our conscience is cleansed. Even as he, Christ, is pure. Verse 4, whosoever sins transgresses also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. Now, this brings us to this idea of secure or non-secure salvation. It gives a definition of sin being transgression of the law. And this is the issue. Sin is the issue in determining whether or not this Savior that whoever, whatever side's talking about, can secure or not secure. If you talk to anybody that, uh, for example, uh, a lady that was here last week out in the hallway suggested I go here, a lady at the Solid Rock Church. She's a, a woman pastor. Said, this is a good pastor. This is, you want to hear her. First thing in my mouth is, they teach you can lose your salvation. I mean, I know it. It's what they teach. They taught ever since the foundation of their church. They've taught you can lose your salvation. So if you ask those kind of people, if you, if I would go visit her and press her, how do you lose your salvation? Or, or ask anybody that says you can lose your salvation. If you press them, they will all come to the same conclusion. It has to do with sin. It has to do with sin. Some kind of sin, a certain amount of sin, something about sin. And even people that claim that you can be eternally secure, they even hedge at this. They'll say, well, you can only do that for so long. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's just come back to reality a second. Haven't we asked this question before? Do you sin every day? We've asked that. Do you sin once a day? Usually people go, uh, yeah, more than once a day. Okay. Well, you claim to be converted for... How many years? And you've sinned every day since then? So what is this issue about you can only do so many sins for so long? I mean, are you past the 70 times 7, 490? Yeah, yeah, you are. People are not good mathematicians when it comes to sin. Well, they say, well, it's, it's not willful sin. Oh, come on. All sin is willful sin. Well, it's not habitual. Sounds like it to me. Well, I don't practice it. Seem like I'm pretty good at it so far. And, and these things in different contexts mean different things. And, you know, I, I could say this thing about practicing. And, and it, in our context here in 1 John, some modern versions use the word practice. Well, what kind of sin? Willful. What kind of sin? Hebrews 10.26 says, if you sin willfully after you receive the knowledge of the truth. Well, that's talking about a specific sin. It's talking about unbelief. That's talking about going back into the old covenant. And that's unbelief. That's a specific sin that you willfully have left Christ as the only way. And you're going back into an inferior system. That's not a more excellent sacrifice. You're going back. 
So certain things mean certain things in their context. But there are a, there are a people, a group of people, who claim to be sovereign grace, reformed Calvinistic, who have these weird ideas that they don't sin willfully, all the other sins. They, they don't sin willfully. They don't make it a habit of sin, and they don't make it a practice of sin. They really are convinced that that's the case, and they're deceived. They're lying to, they're lying to me because I call them out. They're lying to themselves, and I don't think they even believe it. That's why inside their guts they have anxiety, and they're scared to death. And their obedience is fear-based. It's fear-based. They're scared to death. they got no assurance. So this idea of sin, transgression of the law, if they say that a certain sin or sins or a certain amount of sins or a certain, once you're past a certain point, sin or sins will cause you to lose your salvation, they're saying... Our text right here, we just read it. Sin is transgression of law. So you're saying, did I hear you right? you got to keep the law to be saved. Some of them will go as far as saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say it that way, but yeah. Right? Because that's what they'll say. They'll say, but you can't be an antinomian. All I'm saying is you're not a law keeper. I'll tell you that right now. You are not a law keeper. You can think you can. You can try to convince yourself, but the same book of 1 John says in the first chapter that you're a liar. Around verse 8 or 9, 10, it says three different things, three different ways about sin and salvation and whether you're telling the truth or you're a liar. And if you say that you're a law keeper, you are a big fat liar. Again, what's the standard? If you think you're a law keeper, you don't think much of God and his standard. You don't know anything about the holiness of God. You don't. You don't know him. The God that is high and lifted up and the smoke filled the temple and his train filled the temple and, and the seraphims flying above him with three pair of wings saying, holy, you don't, you don't know him. If you think you're a law keeper, your eyes are closed. You're blind. Verse 5, 1 John 3, 5, and you know that he was manifest or made known to what? Take away our sins, and in him is no sin. We, we know that from um, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin was made sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He has, he has not known sin. Verse 6, whosoever abides in him sins not. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning for this purpose, the Son of God was made known, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are made known, and the children of the devil are made known. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. So as we, and we'll get back to some of these comments about the things we just read here in a second, but when people, they'll take this book like they do James, and they'll shove it down your throat in trying to say you've got to be a law keeper, talking about the commands of God. Well, what's it say about the commands of God? Verse 23, 1 John 3.23. They, they read up the first in chapter 2 there about some of that stuff. And let's just go right here. 1 John 3.23. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. So early on in the book it says, 
if you love me, keep my commands. And those that love me will do these commands. And you've got people running around saying all kinds of stuff, what that means. And you've got people like, you know, biting their fingernails and saying, am I saved? Do I keep his commands? What are they? Well, here it is. We just read it, verse 23. And so as we look at verse 23, we also need to go further and ask this. What is the standard? Again, absolute perfection. So are you going to take these commands and say that you're willing to enter into judgment on how well you love the brethren? Is that what this text is saying? The writer, John, the Apostle John, is, is being gentle with peace, saying little children, speaking to babes, some babes in Christ. Are you keeping the law? Is that what he's saying? <laughs> Is he, is he putting him right back under the law and saying, if you can't say that you can go before God right now to the throne of God in judgment and enter in based on how well you love your brethren, you're going to hell. Is that what he's saying? Make a lick of sense. That can't be what he's saying. Because you know what? Everybody would go to hell. Because we don't hear what the law says. We don't understand the standard. The standard is absolute perfection. If you're thinking it says what I just said people think it says, then again, you have a low view of God. Christ is the one that came and did this perfectly. Unto his Father. He's our hope. That's who we look to. What about even your faith in the gospel? I mean, we're always talking about a false gospel, and I think we all know what a false gospel is. We all claim in here to believe the gospel, and I, and I think we do. I think we know what the gospel is. But we don't progress and grow as much as we should. And sometimes I would venture to say there's fears and doubts that come up. And again, so do you want to go before the throne of God uh, on how perfect your faith is or your repentance? Now, you don't want to go how well, how perfect your faith is or how perfect your love of the brethren is. Neither one. Therefore, what does it do? It drives me to have faith in the Son of God and to love my brothers and sisters who have faith in the Son of God. Now, this is natural. That's what it drives me to do. Do you see the cause and effect? You know, when you have that other view, it's turned inward. And there's hatred toward those you think you're a brother. It's competition. It's what it is. It's competition. It's accusing and excusing. You get people in that atmosphere, and you have to make sure for you to feel better that you're better than them in that competition. <laughs> Yeah, I love my brother. At least I did I did such and such. He didn't even do that. Ah, you feel good now, don't you? Grace is sufficient. The true gospel is perfect. Not our knowledge of it, but the gospel is perfect. Not how good our faith is in it. It's enough. That's the point. It's enough. God has given enough to cause it to happen, to cause us to grab hold of him and to lean on him and to count on him, to trust in him, to agree concerning the truth about Christ. We agree. We say yes and amen. The promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. When we hear it, we hear the shepherd's voice. We hear the voice of Christ. It's yes. <laughs> That's right. That I, I get that. I that makes sense to me. This other, it doesn't make sense. It's not amen, it's boo. Boo and hiss. Whatever the opposite, I don't know what you say. Not in agreement. Maybe in the, in the old times where they would stand up and they would rip their clothes and make a scene to make a distinction of, I don't agree. God's people believe the gospel and they are in the state of justification and the non-imputation of sin. When God looks at them, they are not sinners in Christ. They're perfect. 
They cannot sin. They don't sin. They can't be charged with sin. They've been given repentance from dead works. And they don't practice self-righteousness. Self-righteousness has been identified by them through the revelation of the gospel. God has given them repentance of self-righteousness and dead works and idolatry concerning the ground of salvation. Their mind is totally changed about that forever. They don't practice that sin. That's unbelief, by the way. That's why the ministry of the church is in place, so that we may keep going over the gospel and growing the gospel. So when somebody comes in by stealth, unawares, and they start talking about dabbling in other ways, additions and conditions, we are on guard and we say, oh, that doesn't sound right. That's not the voice of the shepherd. No, nope. Stop. No, I'm not holding to that. We don't practice that. We, call, we identify it. We call it out. There may be times of bewitchment. There may be times of, of confusion. But it's from the enemy. Look at verse 20. Jude 20. But you, beloved, building up yourselves in the most holy faith, talking about the gospel, praying in the Holy Ghost, Keep yourselves in the love of God. And they say, okay, Scott, that's it. There it is right there. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's, that's the key. You got to do it. I told you it was conditioned on you. That word keep here means guard. The love of the doctrine of the love of God and how it, how it works is the love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not conditioned on me. And I don't do things to, to bring myself into the love of God. I'm guarding against any idea that would attack that. Because as soon as you change that around, you're turning the grace of God into wantonness or lasciviousness or sensuality or unbridled lust. There's three interpretations of what it's set up in the other verses. We guard ourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. <laughs> if we could do something to get in the love of God, and then the next part of the line says something about mercy, that we've just obligated God to have mercy on us by something we did to cause God to love us more. Here in Alice in Wonderland right now. That makes sense. And if some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that's spotted by the flesh. So these are the people that we're preaching to that are believing these, these falsities. We're trying to help them with the truth. Now unto him. Now, I'm going to take the middle part of this, these two verses out. The next part is, that is able to keep you from falling, present you faultless before the presence of the Holy, His glory and exceeding joy to the only wise and true God, our Savior. And then it picks up, be glory. So I'm going to take that middle part out just so we can see it. And it goes like this. Now unto Him, again, the, the message is the gospel is preservation. And it has to do with the preserver or who is the Savior, right? We're talking about Christ. So let me cut the middle part out and we'll put it back in. Now unto him, Christ, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. That's it. You know, emphatic, clear, true statement. And in the middle there, we'll put it back in. This describes what he does because of who he is. He is the one that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I think it's talking about his joy, not yours, even though you'll have it. To the only wise God, our Savior. This is the one we're talking about. And again, this is why we brought this up. This is the Savior. This is the only one that can keep you. Otherwise, there's glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever in your own self. We know from testimony of Scripture, you don't have any of that. You don't have the power to do nothing but sin. 
So a Christ who fails to secure those whom he saves is not a savior, but a failure, an idol, a false Christ. And the system that says that you can lose your salvation conditions it on law-keeping, which can only be described as a curse or the administration of death. Any preacher that teaches or preaches such a message that a person can lose their salvation is a false teacher, is a heretic. And any church that teaches that a person can lose their salvation is a false church. And this is all about the glory of God. It's not just some academic exercise. It's not like we've, we've looked at a few things in their context and it's pretty neat how they fit together. This is life and death. This is no game. This is truth versus lie. And this is about not tolerating an imposter or a fake gospel. It's about the glory of God in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's all I got. I mean, I skipped over like half of my notes, but it is what it is. Questions, comments?